Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Sophia Torres-McKay and Ryan McKay at Cramoisie's new tasting room in Dundee. It's June 4th, 2021. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Uh, first question, biggest question, why wine? Why? Thank you, Rich, for coming here. And thank you, Tia. Um, what wine? I think, so I think for me, what wine, it would be um, just because it has like a whole story in, in a bottle, in a glass, right? It's like the representation of love, representation of passion, hard work, um, community, celebration. Um, so I think involves lots of, uh, lots of happiness too, but also maybe not. <laughs> you know, you just, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's just like, a, I, I just like it just because it, says, it tells you a story of different hands involved in able to make that wine. And that requires lots of work, but also um, a passion. Mm-hmm. So to me, I was, I was very involved with that, uh, with wine, just because of that. It's, I didn't know too much about all the hard work that requires to make wine and to grow grapes. Um, so I very respect all the people that do that. Now I, I really understand the whole process and and I'm even more passionate about it. Yeah. How did you get looped into this, Ryan? Yeah, um, so I guess my interest in wine would date back to uh, working at Oasis Fine Foods um, in, the, uh, in the wine department there. Uh, they sent me to um, a wine study course, Bob Sogi's World of Wine or something like that, um, down in Eugene. That was kind of really kind of what piqued my interest was was that experience and, and just uh, you know one of the things I think that caught my attention early on was just that you know no, every wine is different and it's and it really kind of harkens back to the the place that it was grown and there's all these vineyards across the world and you know or right next door to each other and they all make a a different and a unique wine. Um, Kind of like people, I guess, in that way. Um, and yeah, I guess uh, to some of the stuff that you know, Sophie was talking about, my uh, you know uh, appreciation of wine has has grown and changed over the years, right? Especially through the the process of planting our own vineyard and starting our own winery. Um, you, you definitely deepened that um, for sure. You're getting more involved in the process of of the making of it. Mm-hmm. So, Sophia, we'll start with you. Talk a bit about your life before wine. Uh, where did you grow up and, and mm-hmm. how, did, how did you first discover wine? Yeah. So, I grew up in Mexico City. I was born there. Um, I moved to the United States in 2002. My experience with wine, I will say I used just to drink it, but I, I used to drink the cheap wine. I didn't know too much about wine, so actually I don't have like... Um, you know, the knowledge of that I have right now. But I, to me, it was more like drinking it just because I like it. But, but, I, but I didn't know how to describe it. I didn't know, you know, sometimes like where the wine was coming from, that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I used to have my favorites, but I think my introduction with wine 
like the deep introduction with wine, it was when I was maybe 24, when I started a little bit more picky about wines, I started traveling more, so I started enjoying a little bit more the whites. I was more like whites, uh, very refreshing wines. Um, but, but also I was a very cocktail girl. I mean, I grew up in Mexico City, so I used to drink lots of tequila, uh, a little bit of mezcal, lots of cocktails with vodka, that kind of stuff, so not so much into wine. <laughs> um, yeah, so then I moved to United States in 2002. Um, I, I went to I went to the university in Mexico, so I studied my bachelor's in science communication and marketing. And then I started working with uh, a company that, uh, it was a software company in Mexico. And then, um, then that company gave me the opportunity to work in the United States. Uh, we were partners of Informatica, this company that is in Redwood City, California, and able to help them to expand markets through distribution in Latin America. So I was hoping in, to do that, and to me that was a great opportunity. And uh, so I didn't know, I didn't have any experience about making wines or growing grapes. I was just in the corporate business, you know, trying to take that opportunity to grow my career into that path. And, and then uh, living in the United States um, and working with this company, I met Ryan. <laughs> so Ryan was actually working two cubicles for me. And, um, and we didn't date right away, but we met exactly the first day when I moved, remember? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and we started talking a lot. He was always super nice with me. And, and then when he heard that I was staying longer than supposed, the project was supposed for one year, but then they asked me if I could stay longer, so I said yes. And Ryan started inviting me to go out, so we started dating. And then I realized he was from Eugene, Oregon. So when we started coming to Eugene to visit his parents, I get to know the Pinot Noirs. I didn't know so much about the Pinot Noirs, and to be honest, I was very ignorant about the Willamette Valley. I didn't know the Pinot Noirs for the Willamette Valley, the Chardonnays, I didn't know anything. I didn't know even that existed. I, I knew more about you know Napa Valley and other regions in the world, Sonoma, of course, because we were living, I was living around that area. But, um, but that, that was the way that I started knowing about the Pinot Noirs, the great Pinot Noirs that Oregon produces because Ryan is from Eugene. So um, I fell in love with both. I fell in love with Ryan, I fell in love with the Pinots, I fell in love with the whole story, with how beautiful the people are here, you know, like helping each other. And, um, and then we, we start dating, we marry um, after a year, eight months, then we have kids and we both have that passion, especially Ryan, he told you about his passion when, when he was working at Oasis, right? Um, so he used to talk about wine and we always, every night we used to have a bottle of wine. It's part of our, it's part, it's part of our food. We would say it's not just to drink, to get drunk, it's really to drink, to enjoy it and to, to appreciate that, right? So um, Ryan, you know, he cooked really well, so we always share a bottle of wine. So I, I, I think that was my, my first real, you know, kind of getting to know the wines better from this region, right? Mm -hmm. And we start traveling a lot together to different regions in the world. And, um, and we just very, uh, you know, people that we just always enjoy wine. So that's kind of like how I got into, into wine, just like real, like I was very interested about the process. But even then, by then, before we have this, you know, I didn't know the whole process um, that requires to grow grapes. Mm -hmm. So then I can just tell you about that 
after Ryan talks about it. <laughs> so grew up, grew up in Eugene and, and working wine. So tell me about, even though that wasn't the path you started on, tell me about like, kind of the passion for wine and learning about wine and why you eventually thought it might be something you'd like to do with your career. Yeah, I you know, was actually interested in a career in wine right from, you know, kind of leaving college, but um, I didn't find, uh, I guess, the you know opportunity I was looking for or something. So uh, I ended up working in technology down in the Bay Area. Fortunately, that's how I met Sophia. Um, and uh, yeah, we used to travel um, just kind of the local wine country there. Um, our, one of our favorite things to do was to travel up to uh, the Russian River Valley because it, it's uh, a bit more like Oregon wine country. And um, you know, it's a, it's a little greener, a little lusher, um, you know, cooler they grow, you know, cooler varietals there. Um, and you know it's not quite as quite as busy and crowded as uh, some of the other <coughs> stops near the Bay Area. Um, yeah, and those were those were you know great weekends we, we used to spend out there and out at the coast and stuff. And um, uh, you know one of the things that I, I reflect back upon that though was um, you know so even back then some of the places that you most wanted to visit were. Um, were hard to access, right? Um, and you could go to uh, a place and, and you just wanted to buy a bottle of their Pinot Noir and you couldn't. Um, and that really kind of stuck with me as something I would like to try and avoid here, you know, which is interesting because our wine club is, is nearly at capacity. Um, we're kind of mm -hmm. thinking about how we want to deal with that, but we, you know, want to continue to make it so that you know, anybody could come up here and, and taste our wine and, and uh, you know, take a bottle home if they want to and, and try and keep, uh, try and keep it, you know, um, an accessible experience, right? Versus, um, you know, something that's closed down and, and uh, inaccessible to most people, so. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious about, obviously, and both of you enjoyed wine as, as consumers and, and both of you enjoyed exploring wine regions and wines. I'm curious about sort of developing uh, a palette for wine, a language for wine. At what, what point did you feel sort of like you kind of understood at least how to describe wines and, and, what, and what kind of wines you appreciated and liked and maybe would like to make someday? Uh, well, for, you know, for me, it goes back to that first job in, in college. I was very much kind of part of what I had to learn to do for that job was to be able to identify what we were looking for and, and, and probably more importantly, be able to just kind of convey to a customer what they could expect or maybe kind of steer them in the direction of, of, of what they would like. Um, but, I, you know, I always had an interest in cooking, you know, kind of going back to uh, you know, when I was a, when I was a little kid, you know, just working with my mom in the kitchen, and so he's so, very good. Yeah, food, <laughs> food, and uh, food and wine are you know, uh, you know, a match made to be, right? So, um, you know, to me, there, there's a, some of it's somewhat natural, right? It's just you know, if you if you love the flavors of food and kind of trying to pair those with the wine and and whatnot, it all it's all kind of the same, really. I'm curious why why Pinot Noir against you're trying all these different kinds of wines, all these different kind of varietals. Why, yes. What was what about Pinot Noir was intriguing to you? You know, I, I mean, first because you know Ryan kind of contacted me with that passion about the the the, the grapes that they they grow in Oregon, right? The Pinot Noir. Uh, being in Mexico, uh, I had the influence of the big, bold, big reds, you know. Um, 
So to me, my palate was more friendly with those kind of wines. Um, but I, and I remember I used to drink them by itself. So when I, when I came here, or I started dating Ryan, and he started introducing me with Pinot Noirs from Oregon, I was like, oh wow, this is so smooth. You don't need to have food. Because my palate was, you know, trained with the other wines. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not that I was a big connoisseur. I'm still learning. <clears throat> I don't define myself that I'm like an expert because I'm not, and I'm still learning. Um, you were talking about at the point, like you feel now like you can describe the wines and that kind of, I, I, I still have to learn a lot. Mm -hmm. I'm not a sommelier, I'm, not, I'm, I'm a grower, I have this business, but every day I think we just keep learning. I love learning, I love, um, you know, tasting different wines. I need to keep training my palate to appreciate the different uh, varietals, not just not just Pinot, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess um, to me it was very interesting uh, when I start getting more into wines to see the differences between, you know, the grapes and the personality of the wine and the profiles of the different wines, but also, as Ryan mentioned, the personality of where the wine comes from. So I was getting a little bit more interested about the regions, mm -hmm. how the regions affect, you know, the climate, the microclimate, um, the ways that you farm your, your grapes it could be biodynamic, it could be organic, it could be conventional, and it really, really influences the, the flavor of your wine. It doesn't matter what varietal, but it matters how, what you do in your vineyard. And I think that's what, is, what intrigues me more, um, because if you screwed up in your vineyard, if you screwed up, you know, if you don't have good ethics, in your vineyard, if you don't have love for your place, if you don't have that passion for what you're growing, if you don't have a good relationship with the people that really tends your grapes, mm -hmm. with your winemaker, with the people in the community, all that kind of like, that's, that's the part that really, um, I think is deposit my passion for this, you know? So, but I'm not an expert. I still learning from experts. I learned a lot from Ryan. He has, it's pretty good about describing wines, I guess. <laughs> But I'm, I'm learning. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't consider myself expert. I'm just still, uh, there's lots of, lots of room to learn. Mm -hmm. yeah. So at what point does this start to become a reality? What point do you decide that you're going to find a space and start a, a winery? What's, what's the first step and what's kind of the, what was the impetus behind it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I, me personally, I, I think had a desire to, to do something with wine later in life, and, and Sophia actually asked me you know, when she was uh, when we were dating. She's like, "Well, you know, what would you want to do, you know, after technology?" And, and uh, I said, oh, "I'd rather I'd like to have an oyster farm or a vineyard." Mm -hmm. um, and uh, she's like, uh, "It's the funny part is she loves oysters. If you open a dozen fresh oysters, she would eat them all, and, and you might get one." Um, so <laughs> no, it was very interesting. Which but is it? Yeah, but but she she was like, "Yeah, you know, no, like don't don't oyster farm doesn't sound so interesting, but the vineyard sounds kind of cool." But um, and, now, and I think that's yeah. really interesting. Like, yeah. And now I want to have the oyster farm as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I, yeah, I mean, I think we had a little bit of an idea, kind of going going back all the way then. Um, but we were, uh, you know, work had taken us um, up to Canada, and we were living in Vancouver, BC, which was a place that we really loved and was very hard to leave. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, we were, you know, had an eye for maybe the kind of the next chapter of our life. Um, 
you know, beyond corporate America. So, um, you know, he started looking pretty intensely, um, would have been like in like, you know, 2007, 2008, just started, really started kind of researching, but, you know, trying to maybe model out what a business would look like. Um, and, uh, you know, interestingly, like, like I, I kind of started with the notion that we would just grow grapes and we wouldn't make wine. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, that's all, that's all changed, you know, as, as time has gone on, but, um, that was kind of what we were looking for. And, and then, um, you know, I guess at some point we just realized that, you know, maybe the, the timing was right. The, uh, you know, the, the markets, uh, you know, in, in BC were favorable for us to, to sell our home and, and to purchase something down here. Um, we'd done a lot of the homework and kind of knew what we were looking for. And, uh, um, you know, we started looking in and kind of found this place, you know, through serendipity. We were, um, you know, looking at places in the Eola Hills on the east side of the Eola Hills um, and had appointments that afternoon in, uh, in Ribbon Ridge. Um, there's generally speaking, even, you know, 10 years ago, um, very little, if any, property in the Dundee Hills available, mm -hmm. um, you know, so. And anybody that buys or gets a hold of a vineyard site here pretty much has knocked on somebody's door and, you know, made a deal that wasn't, you know, available to the, the general public, right? So, but we, we happened to be driving down this road right here um, and there was a, a for sale sign, like the old owner had just like this big uh, piece of plywood that he'd stuck out on mm -hmm. Warden Hill Road that said for sale 10 acres. And uh, we said, oh, that's interesting. We wrote that down and um, ended up coming back to, to look at that at a later date. and. Um, that w w turned out to be the one, so. Yeah. Tell me about the site when you, when you found it. What, what was it like and, and what did you kind of foresee for it? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Do you want to say it because you know? Uh, well, so when we got it, the, so the, the history of this place as I, as I understand it um, is originally it was, it was an upland prairie or maybe the edge of an oak savanna mm -hmm. um, and it had been turned into uh, you know, farms around the, you know, the, the turn of the century. Um, originally it was uh, uh, prunes, walnuts, and cherries that were up here. And actually that little house over behind you that you can't see on the camera was a, was a cherry drying house. Um, and then in the Columbus Day storm, um, our neighbor over here, he was, uh, he, he inherited that property from his, from his father. Um, and uh, so he was out here as a, as, a, as a young kid growing up in Portland, but they had the, the farm out here. Um, he said that it blew down all the trees mm -hmm. on this hill. So literally all the fruit trees were, were on the ground um, on that day back in the early 60s. And, um, and at that point, um, a, a lot of this was replanted to hazelnuts. Um, and so this was a hazelnut farm and then um, the people that we bought the property from had actually removed the hazelnuts with, you know, the idea of planting a vineyard, but never got to it. So, right. Yep. Um, so we got basically grass and weeds, um, which was good because it was it was easy to go from there to planting the vineyard. So that's a wild moss, yeah. right? I remember when yeah. we came, it was completely yeah. yellow because all the moss. Yeah. yeah, lots of mustard. Yeah. yeah, but it was but it was I mean it was ready for us to to plant and before even we purchased the land um, because we were very interested. Ryan always wanted to start from scratch. Uh, I was looking to, to live close to restaurants and you know, like <laughs> I think because I didn't want to 
I mean, Ryan travel used to travel a lot. I used to travel a lot. I wanted to be closer to highway or something. Mm -hmm. Not the highway, highway, but I mean, access to get to the airport, that kind of stuff, and restaurants. Because I'm from a big city, so kind of like the the, the country kind of it was a little bit because I never live in the countryside uh, or wine country. So it was like, uh, yeah, I want to live there, but I I need some kind of urban, you know, kind of a thing. Um, but when we before we purchased the land. Um, we hired a geologist um, that he came and then he dig some holes you know, on the property. He gave us a document with all the soils that this property has. And Ryan can tell you a, a, a little bit more deep about that. Um, and I, by then I didn't understand anything about what he was saying, to be honest, because uh, like how the soils, that's what I was telling you before, the soils really affect, you know, the, or influence the, the, the wines, right? And, um, and I was just like listening and I was like, okay, is this a place that we can plant grapes? <laughs> I know it is because we're surrounded of the pioneers, right? But I really wanted to hear that from him, right? Um, but yeah, as Ryan said, we wanted to start from scratch. We wanted to select our own clones. We wanted to, even though we didn't know too much, or at least I didn't know that much about what clones were available, what clones we liked the best, you know? We did lots of research, lots of tasting. Uh, but yeah, the property was completely clean for us to start, and I thought we we was just so lucky to be, you know, on Warning Hill Road, Dundee Hills, surrounded all these amazing pioneers um, that they they help us a lot too, right? Uh, to understand this, and and then Ryan, if you want to talk a little bit of the geology of the the place, because it's very interesting, um, you know, in these ten acres that we purchased. Including that includes the house, so we have seven acres of grapes right now. But um, the yoli was very interesting. Now I understand more. But like before, when this guy came and Ryan was talking to him, I was like, I don't know what they're talking about. But I think it's good because Ryan is happy. <laughs> so if you want to tell him about that process and the geology of the place, yeah. Yeah. So we're we're here in the Red Hills of of the Dun, or Red Hills of Dundee. Yeah, Dundee Hills. Um, in, in soil, Sophia was talking about that soil map that um, our soil geologists had put together for us. Uh, we didn't really realize what a great tool it would be at the time. We were just trying to make sure we were investing our life savings uh, wisely, right? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, uh, but what we came to realize was, you know, when you think of the Red Hills, is you, you know, you think of the, the Jory soil. And, and Jory soil, um, by definition, is you know, I think it's like six to eight feet of uh, relatively rock-free uh, red soil. Um, and uh, it's born of, uh, of basalt. Um, and the, the soils that we have here are all of that Jory series. Are, they are born of basalt, but they are highly variable in terms of their depth and their rock content. Um, we have soil here that's much more uh, similar to the Yola Hills in some areas. And then we have some areas that are very um, you know, very much the traditional deep, you know, Jory soils of, of Dundee Hills um, and everything kind of in between. And so it was really interesting when we looked at that is like we got, you know, so much variety in, in such a small piece of land. So then when we planted the vineyard, um, we took what we have about a little under seven acres under vine and divided it up into 11 different vineyard blocks, which is uh -huh. a lot for a, a little vineyard. But the, the idea was that we were trying to isolate each one of those little areas of, of soil and then match an appropriate 
kind of clone and rootstock to it. And that just launched us into a whole, you know, uh, period of, of really, you know, looking at the different Pinot Noir clones that were available that perhaps could become available to us, um, you know, the impact of the rootstocks. And, and uh, you know, we really just dive deep on those subjects and, and tried to, to figure it out. And so, yeah, we've got those 11 different blocks. They're all unique clone rootstock soil combinations. So when we bring it all back together, there's a, there's a lot of complexity and diversity in the wine when we do that. And it's a little bit tricky to farmer <clears throat> or to harvest, right? Yeah. Because those 11 blocks, they sometimes they, some of them they ripe faster than other ones, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's just, uh, um, it's tricky, but adds the complexity that Ryan says, right? Yeah. To make better wines, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when, you, when you set out to, with all, all the research you're doing, obviously colonial research and, and soil research, did you have a, a flavor in mind? Did you have something, what, what were you trying to put in a bottle eventually? Or, I, guess, I guess I should back up. At first you were talking about purely just planting grapes and you were talking about making wine. When it came time to make wine, what, what kind of wine were you trying to make? Um, yeah, I, you know, I guess we, we try to um, approach with you know, a certain humbleness, uh, uh, um, a goal that lacks any humility, which is like, uh, we want to make the best wine in the world, right? So uh, we try to approach that very humbly, right? So, um, but that was, that was really the idea. Um, and so, uh, you know, from a, a Pinot Noir perspective, um, you know, we wanted to create something that had, you know, great intensity uh, in depth, but was also, you know, very, very balanced and, and true to its varietal character um, and, and really reflected the, the terroir of the place. Um, and so there, I wouldn't say that, that we were shooting for any particular, you know, um, you know, color or flavor or anything like that, but we wanted to make the best, um, you know, that we possibly could and, and, and really kind of shoot for the stars on that one. Um, so that, that was kind of the, you know, just the guiding principle to everything that we've done is, 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 you know, just, you know, do it the absolute best that you could. So that came down to, um, you know, spacing, clonal selection, um, you know, the amount of crop that we hang. Um, cover crops. Uh, yeah, cover crops. And it actually led us to the, the biodynamic farming. So mm -hmm. um, I, think, I think we have, you know, we've always kind of liked the idea of organic, but, um, the biodynamics really kind of surfaced to us as um, a way to make the best wine. Um, and that's kind of how we got interested in that. And then we kind of, you know, fell in love with the spiritual aspect of it and, and just, uh, you know, the, the closed loop farming and just some of the, the ideas behind it. Um, but it wasn't that we started with that and then, you know, decided it's to plant a vineyard or, or whatever. It was, it was really, it was, uh, it was kind of the means to the end of making the best wine. And also, I just want to add our purpose or intention was to really express our place, mm -hmm. express the flavor of what our great mother nature gives you, right? As we work with the philosophy of biodynamics, I think we try to work with mother nature in some way, you know, following the moon cycles. Don't ask me deep questions about that because I don't know. I just, we just, I just follow the calendar, right? I would like to get more deep into that. Um, but just to understand, you know, uh, your land, 
that's very important because that's where your wine is going to grow, right? I mean, we're big believers about the wine is born in the vineyard. It's not in, it doesn't born in a winery. Uh, so it was, it's born in the vineyard. So we have to treat our place with respect. We have to treat our place like we treat our kids, right? With giving them the best nutrients um, that we can. And that's why we decided to go through biodynamics to create our, and to, and to um, make our own preparations, right? Um, we treat them with teas, for example, uh, chamomile tea, horsetail tea, but Ryan said that wasn't, like, I mean, I didn't know anything about that when we purchased the land. I was just happy that we were here, but I didn't know that it came with the process. Ryan maybe had a better idea, but I, I was just learning with the process and I, I'm very, very passionate about the, the whole philosophy about biodynamics. Some people, they, you know, what I like about the biodynamics is about you just have to do it. And then if that works for your place, if that is like, you don't feed your kids the same. Some, some of your kids then don't eat the same foods. Some of them, they eat one thing and the other one eats one thing and then they come different. The same with our place. We try to do the best for our place and, and follow that, um, the, the preparations, right? And I think that really makes the wines and influence the wines that we have and they're beautiful. But uh, Ryan was talking about, there was no intention in the beginning about the what, flavor because we didn't know the land. Mm -hmm. So we didn't know how, uh, you know, the geology or how the wines will, will influence or express, you know, and when you're drinking it, what, like plums and cranberries and that kind of stuff. I, I never thought about like, oh, I want to make wine with cranberries. Maybe your soul cannot give you that. Maybe, you know, your grapes don't do that. Your climate doesn't give you that. You know, our side is very kind of windy so I always said that our grapes are a little bit thicker just because they develop a thicker skin in some areas. And maybe that's why maybe it gives a little more intensity in the color, um, the time of the fermentation, the process of making wine. So there's like different characters. You just have to really look, walk in the vineyard as you make these preparations, you give these nutrients and you really understand them. And then you just kind of learn the process about the potential of what the grape is going to give you on the wine, right? So I think it's just a learning process. I mean, if somebody tells you that they know everything, it's, it's, it's losing, it's missing something, right? I think you always have to learn, and that's why we have only one opportunity a year to make wines, right? To, to, to harvest the grapes, and every year is different, and we have to learn about that. And we have some, you know, statistics about maybe years are similar to other years, and then that's the, you know, kind of like, the information that we have, the data that we have from other years, but every single year provides you an opportunity to understand your land in another, you know, way because the the microclimate and the climate influence mm -hmm. your your grapes, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but yeah, I didn't I didn't know about I want to have I wanted opulent wines, but smooth. <laughs> That's what I wanted, <laughs> but in terms of flavor, I didn't know too much. How, yeah. So you mentioned biodynamics, and obviously an interesting, an interesting talk. I'm curious, as you were learning about biodynamics and as you were implementing it here, what were the biggest challenges for you in sort of being a biodynamic farm, and what were the benefits you saw, or when when did you start seeing benefits from the biodynamic farming? Um, so we started practicing biodynamics, I think, pretty much 
right out of the gate in terms of wine production, right? Like I think we were maybe maybe not our first year when we made one barrel of wine, but mm -hmm. I think by by 2015 we were uh, we were doing it. Um, and, and important to note, we're not uh, a certified biodynamic farm. Um, I think we certainly could be, but um, we just haven't had the time to to chase that. But um, that is probably the, in and of itself the greatest challenge, right? It's mm -hmm. it's uh, it's time intensive, mm -hmm. um, and you have a lot of competing interests for your time. Um, you know, we've got uh, we've got two boys to to raise. Um, uh, I still have a, a day job. Um, Sophia's busy trying to run a, a business, you know, pretty much by herself with a little bit of help from me. Um, and uh, yeah, it's you know, getting getting the time in to to do all the different things is uh, is probably the uh, the greatest challenge because um, it's you know it's in and on top of it doesn't like replace anything right it's like it's it's like a whole other layer of things that you want to do on the farm uh, that otherwise you wouldn't right um, and uh, in terms of the benefits that we see um, I you know. We, we don't really have a, a baseline to compare it against like the, you know, one or, one or the other, but we've been extremely happy with the, the quality of, of, the, of the wine so far. And, um, seems to be, uh, seems to be working well, so. And, and, I, and also I will say one of the benefits that I think is very important just because it's a philosophy that you practice, right? Um, I think just to know that you are trying to do the best for your soils. The grapes appreciate that. Your, work, your vineyard stores appreciate that because they're not touching any chemicals. They're not touching any things that are gonna affect you know, them. Um, you're gonna drink those wines so you know that they're, they're good for you to drink. And um, I think they're, they're beautiful. And then the energy, so biodynamics is based on energy, right? energy underground energy above the cosmos energy and the around you right so that energy really influence also um, your your self energy if you want to say right like when you when you go outside and you look at your place and then you look at the covert crows how they're growing and all the this the you know the good preparation that you're doing I mean I I spray chamomile tea to the vines when we have heat waves right and that benefits me too, right? <laughs> uh, because the chamomile tea comes to my face and it's just very relaxing. I try to calm down the, the, the vines about that. So all that, it really benefits the place. It really benefits you mm -hmm. and the energy. I mean, I hear some people that they say, oh my God, I, we love this place. And then I, we took them to the vineyard and then they said, it's just the energy feels good here. I don't know, for some reason, it's just like a different vibe. Mm -hmm. And when I hear that, I mean, I don't tell them about the energies, but some people, they, because I don't want people to think like, this lady's crazy, right? <laughs> when, you talk, when you start talking about those energies and that kind of thing, that could affect you. Uh, but people mention that. And I think that's also a great benefit that you can see that your place is, it's alive. Mm -hmm. That your place, it uh, has a good vibe. That your place, it's happy, right? Uh, even, or, uh, you know, you have your stress, you know, in some way that your place kind of, it's, it tells you how happy it is, right? I mean, if you walk on the roads and then you see, um, you know, our grapes and, and uh, the soils and, I mean, Ryan can tell you about 
his idea about bringing the native flowers and native grasses, you know. Um, I mean, just, just that, no, everybody has that kind of stuff, you know. And we just wanted to make it just because this is kind of our, our paradise, right, that we want to share with people. And you can tell about that. And I think that's a great benefit. Do you want to talk about the native grasses that you were thinking? Oh, yeah, I guess, you know, tie back to the, what we were talking about earlier, like what this was before. So it used to be an upland prairie. So um, we've started to try and uh, move towards a, a no-till approach. Um, so uh, tilling disturbs the, you know, the, the life underneath the soil. Um, and so we were trying to move away from that. Um, and at the same time, restore um, the native plants in between the rows, so the, the idea being that the prairie could live between the, the grapes, and we'll see how it see how it turns out. But um, yeah, we're just kind of getting started with that uh, with that experiment, if you will. But uh, I think we'll be expanding it this year for sure. So. Yeah, but it's beautiful because if you walk on the rows that we start that, um, you can see kind of like the grass, like the native grass, it looks kind of bluish. Mm -hmm. and you touch it and it's just short, right? It's really short, but it's really soft. So I'm, I'm just admiring myself in a few years, all that is gonna be like grass and you, you can walk without shoes because it's so soft. Like really, like I touch it, I'm like, oh, this is gonna be nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Beats the invasive thistle, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. exactly. Like a vineyard in the park, I like it. Yeah. yeah. So I jumped ahead a little bit earlier and I, I need to back up and ask. So you mentioned that the original concept was a vineyard. Just growing, growing grapes, mm -hmm. sell, selling grapes. At what point did you decide you wanted to make wine? And, and once you did, what was sort of the process behind getting started making wine? Okay. Uh, so by the time we chose to, you know, to, to purchase this piece of property, we had kind of converted our, our thinking to the fact that we would be mm -hmm. making wine in, in a winery. And, and um, you know, I, so I, I'm not sure exactly when that, that transition happened, but it, you know, it was uh, somewhat the, the result of, you know, you know, could we ever acquire enough land and, and you know, develop a vineyard big enough to do it. And, um, you know, so we, we uh, realized that our destiny was, uh, was going to be a smaller farm and, and uh, um, this is how it would work. So um, now that's, uh, you know, it was, you know, it was fine. We, it wasn't like we were being pushed in a direction we didn't want to go or anything. We were pretty excited about the prospect of making wine and um, sought to find, you know, some excellent, um, some excellent help in that area. Um, so as we, you know, planted the vineyard, we started looking for, a, you know, a consulting winemaker to help us. And uh, uh, we talked to lots of people, um, lots and lots of people. and. Ultimately, um, uh, met with uh, Drew Voigt and uh, um, started to you know to, to work with him, and uh, it's been a it's been a great thing for us. For you know, we've been working with Drew for I think seven years now. So it's amazing. Yeah. yeah, but but also I mean I don't know if you remember, but when we used to come here when we were living in Canada, in BC, uh, we used to come for Thanksgiving to visit his family, and then we always used to go wine tasting, and. Kind of like, I don't know if it was on purpose, but we were like, where is Drew? <laughs> or, I mean, at least we, we were a little bit, you were a little bit like, oh yeah, like the winemaker is Drew Foy. We should go see him and talk to him. Not because we were, we were thinking about 
you know, talking to him about making our wine, but but I, I don't know, like we heard really good things about him and then he brought high scores in the places that he used to work. And uh, I remember very clearly when we when we went to Shea Vineyards, um, it was I think 2010, I think, or 2011. We purchased this land in 2011, mm -hmm. maybe 2010, 2009. He was working there, or, or maybe it was before, I don't remember the year. But um, they have a big event there, and there were just those vineyards, they just opened in Thanksgiving, right? So we needed to go there. And, and Drew was there, you know, showing, telling you about the wines and that kind of stuff. And he dedicated, and maybe he might don't remember because he talks to a lot of people, uh, dedicated like a whole hour talking to us about, you know, the wines and the process and that kind of stuff. I mean, Drew is somebody that is very passionate about his, his work. So the only thing that he talks about is wine. So <laughs> he's an encyclopedia of winemaking, right? Um, so he, I, I was just very impressed when, when then finally we decided to go through um, making wine and who will help us. Mm -hmm. That when we interviewed Drew, I think we, we thought that was the best fit for us, yeah. Tell me about with working with, with him and, and obviously he's, he's a winemaker, he has his ideas of what he's gonna do, you have your ideas of what you want. Mm -hmm. Tell me about finding what you want to have in a bottle of your wine and how you kind of communicated that with him and, and how much how much work it was for you? I mean, was it a pretty natural fit, or did you kind of have to, to figure out, just do a, lot of, do a lot of trials to figure out what you wanted? Uh, Drew, I mean, Drew's uh, a 25-year you know, veteran in, in, of the industry here and, and just a you know, kind of a consummate professional. So, I mean, uh, for him, the idea of, you know, making wine in the style that we wanted to see was, was I mean, he just kind of, that was just kind of part of what he does, right? So that part wasn't uh, wasn't a struggle whatsoever. Um, his natural inclination may be a little bit in this direction. Ours may be in a little different direction. We kind of kind of pulls us in, into a happy medium, I think, um, mm -hmm. in terms of, of, of what we get in the end. So uh, it's been a very it's been a very good. Yeah, and he, and he likes that we're very involved that we really wanted to learn because that was one of the first things that... Some days. Yeah, some days. Well, he's very busy. He's been so busy, so... Now, uh, no, but I, be, I remember in the beginning, uh, I was like, because I didn't know too much about winemaking, um, I used to go a lot to the, to the winery and then like, show me this, show me that, and how do you do that? And maybe it was a lot for him, but even that he took the time to, to tell us, right? Um, things about the process and trying to uh, educate us about, you know, the profiles and the first stage after you, you know, the whole fermentation and after you put the, the wine in the barrel and how that evolves with time, uh, because it tastes really different, right? In the beginning, just taste the grape juice and then start the, the you know, the winemaking process. And we used to go and taste the barrels and we used to go and taste the barrels and that kind of stuff. And I was like, I don't know, what is, you know, how this is going to turn in, you know, in 10 months. Mm -hmm. And he used to tell you, I, I think this is going to go this direction. And then he was very good listener about what are the ones that you like the most? Just bring me the bottles and let's just talk about the personality, talk about the profile. So he really listened to us about the ones that we wanted to make mm -hmm. according to our source, according to our place, because our ones we want to express, you know, our place. Mm -hmm. So uh, we didn't want him to decide 
the personality of our wines because he has also his own brand. So we wanted to, you know, kind of bring something that it will be the personality of our place. Yeah. So, but it's pretty easy uh, working with him and Jessica West. She's amazing. So um, they they really listen. I mean, they're busy, but <laughs> they try to listen. <laughs> right. Yeah. Tell me about the about about naming your brand, naming your place, and, and what's behind the name Cremosi. Yeah. So the name was very difficult to find. It's not like I thought naming it your kids it was very difficult, but there could be, you know, a million Mateos in the world, right? It doesn't matter if you name it Mateo and there's another one in Spain or Mexico or here, right? But when you try to pick the name for your for your brand, you have to be very careful, right? That the brand doesn't exist in other places, the, the name doesn't exist in, in other regions, or if it has maybe uh, a name in, in, in type of a food that you don't want it to, you know, people to get recognized about like, oh yeah, remember that? Um, so we came up with a list. We bought some, I remember we bought some books about native names and we bought some books about, you know, um, we were reading a lot and trying to pick like the best names that they were good. Like, I mean, one of the names I remember was the Oak Savanna because this used to be an Oak Savanna, but it was taken, for example. There were lots of names that came in our mind that we have a list of maybe 150 kind of ideas, you know, that we, that we wanted and we just, put it on a paper and then was like searching and I was like, okay, this is taken, this is taken, this is taken. This is like, oh no, this is like um, a yogurt or this is like this or something like that, right? So we were going through different things and we wanted to pick a name that it was in Spanish because I'm from Mexico. We wanted to pick a name that was in English or French, right? So we decided to uh, pick a French name to honor the heritage of the grape that comes from France. And we use the crimson clover to, as a cover crop, but also to give nitrogen to the soils, and you know, it's part of our biodynamic and our philosophy as a farmers. And it's beautiful crimson clover, um, bright, elegant, the same as the personality of our wines. Uh, so crimson is uh, uh, cramoisy is French for crimson, right? Um, so when we talked to the trademark right lawyers, they were like very impressed that oh. That's a really nice name, and no one has it. <laughs> I mean, it took like what six months for them to give us the answer about we could use it, mm -hmm. something like that. And we just fell in love with, you know, the whole story. And then I find out that uh, the crimson clover, the Romans and the the Aztecs, they used the crimson clover and also a little bog that has the red ink uh, to dye clothes for royalty. Um, so it was even like more interesting, right? Uh, it has history. And, um, and our experience in the tasting room is more like intimate experience. So it's kind of like treating you like, like, like that, you know, like a royalty, like give you really the time for this. So um, I don't know if you want to add something about the name. I remember you say, just, just pick the name. Something <laughs> <laughs> you like, but I don't know if you remember any names that you brought. Oh yeah, the Sima Coulet, remember? Yeah, oh, we went through yeah. lots of different names, but yeah, yeah no, you did a good job covering it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Ryan had a good one. It was like the Sima or the Crown, something, because kind of like in where the tasting room is, it was kind of like a, like a crown, right? So we were thinking something about 
Well, yeah, so the idea being that, you know, we're at the top and we're uh, really at the top of the beginning of uh, a creek, right? So this is a, basically a creek valley that runs out this mm -hmm. way. Um, and so uh, it goes down into the, the Willamette River. Um, yeah. So kind of being at the, the, the top of the canyon or uh, if the you will. The top of the canyon, yeah. Um, but probably like, you know, that, that part was somewhat obvious from the, from the geography, but it was probably not the most defining characteristic um, as kind of learning. So one of the things that we started to notice was that our, our site produced this very kind of uh, deep colored wine, mm -hmm. and more so than maybe some of the, the neighboring um, places. And uh, we could never really quite figure out why right um you know it's like oh well, maybe the soil's a little rockier that didn't really explain it and so um you know, over the years we kind of came to realize that this spot is windy uh relative to you know where our house is right over there right um and uh and then it kind of clicked i don't know one day i was standing up there in the vineyard and i was you know you can see down into the shehalem valley and you can see out in the willamette valley there's kind of a hill over here and a hill over there. And you know, it's like, oh, well, we're kind of the, the gap in the hills, if you will. So the wind really travels through here, particularly in the summer. Mm -hmm. um, we get, often have a, a very kind of strong north wind that comes through the, the vineyard in the afternoons and the evenings. And uh, as Sophia mentioned earlier, I think that thickens the skin of the grape. And the more you know, skins that you put in the fermenter, the, you know, in theory, the more color that you should get, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, it's also where the you know, the tannin and the flavor and you know, all that kind of stuff is, is wrapped up in there too, so. Is that that color, right? The crimson, yeah. 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 I'm curious about once you had wine, uh, had wine to sell, tell me about, about selling wine. What, what, obviously, you, 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 not, not, not a background in selling wine necessarily, although a distant background in selling wine. Now that you have your own product to market, how did you market it, how did you sell it? What were the kind of the first steps towards getting your wine into people's hands? Well, we made uh, one barrel in 2014, and then uh, we made a couple hundred cases in 2015. And so, one of the, just the kind of the economic realities for us was we didn't, we couldn't plant the whole vineyard at once. And had we been able to, we probably would have, um, but uh, we couldn't. And it turned out to be a great thing because a, you know, we we learned about you know clones and rootstocks as we went along, and, and we're able to kind of apply that. But it meant that we planted the vineyard kind of little by little, right, mm -hmm. over the course of you know six or seven years, and uh, that actually meant that the wine production kind of ramped up over the course of that time. And so, uh, so we had that 200 cases that that first year, and so that was really kind of the first commercial vintage, which um, coincided with Sophia leaving um, the technology industry in 2017, and then she had 200 cases of wine to sell that year. Um, you know, brand new brand here, and, and uh, she didn't have a tasting room, and uh, yeah, how'd you how'd you make that happen? Uh, it was really hard. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was really hard um, in the beginning. First, because I, you know, I transitioned to being a corporate business, and then being your, you know, leading your own business uh, requires a lot of uh, discipline and a lot of uh, energy and a lot of. I was scared. I was really afraid. Like I didn't want to fail. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was just like, I'm taking, I'm taking this, and I, I remember I told Ryan, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do this. I mean, first of all, it was completely in English. I needed to sell in the U.S. market, right? I mean, my previous job was Latin American market, so my, my, I could use my language, right? 
So second, like I was just learning about the wines, how to describe the wines, how to, and then like I was, I've been in sales my whole life uh, because I was working for technology selling, selling software, but it was very intimidating the first time or in the beginning um, because I was just afraid of, in the beginning, like people will, will ask me lots of questions, right? How do you describe these? And I was like, oh, I just like it. <laughs> it's like, it's really good. It's from the Dundee Hills. <laughs> and that, kind of, that kind of stuff that I, I needed to really put my mind in, like really kind of go inside the wines and really understand everything that evolves to, you know, when you present the wine and, and be true about it. Not just, not just read notes from somebody else just because you don't know, right? You really needed to understand what was happening. And that was good because I, 2017, what it helped me that I was 100% involved in the vineyard. So I understood the, the story of what happens first, how you grow the grapes, right? So I just started that way. Instead of talking too much about the description of the wines, I was just telling them the story of the, wine, the growing the grapes. And I think that was key for me to um, start telling the people how I was learning about wines because I always very you know honest about telling the people you know I'm just new here like I, I I'm not an expert and maybe the customer was an expert right and oh yeah how do you do that how do you do this so it was like that was like the beginning of me trying to and I wasn't thinking about selling it I was just I was just I wanted to tell them their story right and then. Um, it was hard for me too in the beginning because I'm a Latina, right? And, and when I used to go try to, to promote the wines or to sell the wines in restaurants, people were more interested about what a Latina, you know, is doing in Oregon selling wines because it's not very common, right? Um, are you the owner? They used to ask me, and like, yeah, I'm the owner. So it was very surprising for some people, right? Um, so. It was always shifting the story about how did you come to the United States? How do you go interested in wines? How do you? And I was just wanting them to taste the wines because I really needed to sell the wine, right? But then I embraced all those questions and I embraced the whole situation about people were interested in my background in the beginning that I was embracing that. And I was telling them, you know what? I'm from Mexico. I grew up here and then I fell in love with this and then we're making this. And, talking about the story of the vineyard, story of the vineyard stewards, the story of, you know, how we make the wines, but, um, but the way that I learn, right? Because I've, as I mentioned before, I mean, I know more now, but I wasn't a bee connoisseur before. I really don't know, still have to describe deep, like the wines, I, I just say what I feel and how my wines are, but I mean, if, if you take me somewhere else and tell me how to describe the wines, I can tell you some notes, but I don't know the geology of the place from where those wines are, right? So I'm just trying to tell the story of our place, our people, ourselves, how we started, and that helped us, that helped me. And that was very, um, you know, people were very interested about that, and we take them to the vineyard. But it was like a process, mm -hmm. you know? It wasn't like right away. I wasn't feeling confident in the beginning, um, first because of the language, and second, because I knew I didn't know too much about it. And I needed to study a lot. I needed to read a lot. I needed to um, understand the process of growing the grapes. So, but once, 
once the people start getting, you know, um, getting the story and everything, like kind of like start, I start getting a bit more confident. I start partnership with, uh, no partnership, I start getting to know lots of people in the industry. Um, Donna from Wendelly, she helped me a lot to get me, you know, some committees to get to know some people and salute um, with our neighbors. I mean, our neighbors being very helpful. Um, so I just, uh, that was, I think, key for me uh, to volunteer a lot in some of the organizations. So I used to belong to the Dundee Hills One Girls Association and the board, uh, Salute in the Marketing Committee, um, and the Willamette Valley One Girls Association. I, I mean, I volunteer a lot, right? I can tell you about that. Um, but because I wanted to really understand the community as well. Um, I'm, I'm very people-oriented. And um, so I think that also helped me a lot to understand the valley and, and the good things about it and the people. And all that stuff, I, I tell the people where they come and visit. And I think that's, that's a really good tool mm -hmm. that I have. And now I'm not creating something that is not real. I'm just telling the people that come here, what is this, what the valley offers you and what we offer them. In, in our wines, but it was it was really hard in the beginning, to be honest. And then we started remember, like in the beginning, I was like, oh, I sold five hundred dollars. <laughs> oh, I, you know, it was like a big day, you know, in the beginning, and you know, little by little. Now, I mean, we start building this tasting room in two thousand nineteen because we really needed the space because um, we start having lots of people interested in coming here, and. And I mean, you want us to talk about the process? You want to talk about that? About building the tasting uh, we, room? How we started, yeah. Um, yeah, well, we, we started with the concept of kind of like this little kind of cottage thing. Um, and uh, uh, this was the, the logical place to put it um, because, you know, we were talking about me on the top of a creek valley. So there's kind of a bowl shape right here. So it's very steep. Um, and. So there, it's steep this direction and right next to it's steep like this and, and you need to orient a tractor so that it can drive straight up and down a hill. So you, it's really basically impossible to <laughs> put rows on this little particular area. So this was kind of the, the spot. Happens to have a remarkable view too. Um, and yeah, so then you know we, uh, we hired a, a designer and, and uh, you know sketched this thing out and um, it came out a little different than we you know we intentionally set out. Uh, there's <laughs> You know, there's a little bit of good luck and in, in, in a lot of things that have happened here. So, um, but uh, yeah, that's kind of kind of how we uh, how we got here. Well, you said it very easy. It wasn't that that easy. It was <laughs> no, like no. Well, of course lots not. Lots of back and forth. Uh, lots of decisions on the way. That that's Ryan said, right? Did I call it easy? <laughs> I don't think. I, but no. The, the, <laughs> The, the, yeah, the, the process was, uh, you, know, it, you know, coming through COVID was, was challenging. I mean, it were, you know, kind of shut things down for a while and uh, we moved kind of slowly to, through the, and, you know, we had to kind of put one foot in front of the other with just the faith that we were coming out of it, right? Because, um, you know, you know we, we were building something for, in a, you know, in an environment that you couldn't even use it, right? But uh, we knew that, you know, this would come to pass, so. Um, so we kept going. Yeah, the, and the great thing that happened to us is Ryan, his dad, he is a builder. Uh, yes, he's a building company. He's retired now, but we convinced him to help us to build, to build it. To, he was the general contractor. Mm -hmm. So even with COVID, he was coming here 
um, to help us, to guide us. I mean, yeah. Ryan grew up with a builder, so he's pretty good also. So his dad used to say, you need to do this, you need to do that. And he was kind of like um, supervising the crews that were coming. That helped us a lot. I mean, really. And he actually came last week to put the handrail that you see over there. And, and uh, you know, he keeps coming. And <laughs> we, we're still, you know, kind of in the, in the process of finish. But I mean, it's beautiful. We, we talk about um, the, the intentions that we have is to have a kind of like a farmhouse kind of feeling, kind of homey place. I mean, you can tell we don't have a bar. So we, we kind of like inviting into our home, not, not so much to a commercial building kind of a thing. That's, that wasn't something that we really didn't want to have. That was our intention in the beginning, trying to make the feel people comfortable to come here, more intimate, more like you're in my home. Um, and, but, but that was, that was uh, possible with all these, you know, kind of ideas that we start having on the way and, and his dad helped us so much. And, and then also the dormers that you see there, your, your mom told us, well, if he's got such a big roof, like what about, remember the place in France that you used to love? Uh, the hospice, right, that they have lots of dormers. Like, what about if you put dormers? And they, we look so beautiful. And it's like, oh, we didn't think about the dormers. But then in the process, we put the dormers, and it's just so beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, and, and also we invited lots of people from the community, uh, parents, you know, like we have our two kids, 14 and 15. They have their friends and their friends' parents. They have businesses. So some of them are electricians, some of them are, you know, um, they they have a how to call the Jill and in um, they do the uh, site the yeah they do sightings and windows and sightings and that kind of stuff. So we're trying to also help and COVID people that they needed that you know. So it was a I think it's just beautiful you know the story that just to bring in people that you know also in times of crisis you want to say to to build something beautiful. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, we had there was one. Uh, item that was very controversial in here, which is the uh, the windows. So they they were handcrafted oh, yeah. out of Douglas fir in Portland, and they were very expensive. And Sophia uh, was not sure that she liked them. So um, and, and certainly didn't like what they cost. But um, <laughs> but they're beautiful. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think in the end we're, we're all pretty happy with how they turned out. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was like a, you know back and forth like, but I want the windows. Okay. I want this then. And I want like, you know, the backsplash, you know, that I was thinking it was so expensive. And like, but you spend a lot in the windows. What about if we spend a lot in the, this, you know? Um, so it was like, like my job was the interior design. His job was like the whole building kind of a thing, you know, his idea. I mean, look at that fireplace. It's just so beautiful fireplace that it was completely Ryan's design. And uh, he just, he made it happen. In, and you know the trousers come from locally to uh, from Maysara, um, and yeah, I mean everything really came along beautiful. Yeah, but it wasn't easy. <laughs> and, and the event, obviously, you started building it, and then of course the pandemic hit. So I'm, I'm curious, we're talking about 2020. How did it affect this and, and other all the other parts of your business? And what were some of the adjustments you had to make last year to, to, to make it work? Yeah, so at first, um, you know, when everything kind of shut down, we were like, well, what are we going to do? Because uh, our, our wine is 
sold primarily direct to consumer. So, um, you know, if people can't come see you, then how can you sell the wine? Um, and so, but you know, you know, pleasantly surprised that everybody stuck at home. Um, you know, um, they needed wine for their dinner, so <laughs> they just started calling and emailing. And, and Sophia, of course, had you know some some campaigns, ways to reach out yeah. and and, yeah. and and talk to people, and and it all worked pretty well. Um, and then you know we were able to open up outdoors last summer. Um, which uh, which works well here in Oregon. Um, you know, our summers are pretty dry and pleasant, and you know, it's not you know, 100 degrees and 90% humidity or anything like that. So people generally enjoy being outside. Um, yeah, we were in the vineyard. Yeah. So, um, and then you know, then came uh, another kind of shutdown last uh, last year. But you know, it was just it was shocking to see. Uh, I think people were so kind of just done with being stuck inside and, and having, you know, this pandemic kind of run their lives that they would literally sit outside in rain and snow and taste wine so that they could go out on a weekend <laughs> and enjoy, enjoy their life, right? So it was, it was fun to see, you know, the resilience of, of human beings, right? You know, on full display in that, in that way. Um, yeah, so I mean, you know, all in all, it was, you know, it wasn't uh, ideal, but it uh, was certainly workable, so. Yeah, no, it was a, a lot of uh, support from our one club members, you know, with customers, people in the community, like, it was just like, I was just amazed because I remember I needed to process the, the one club shipments in the fall, and I was just like, oh, should I, you know, I, I think I need to call people to see if they're, they're okay with that because maybe they have some issues and they just don't even remember about it. They have their shipment coming or something. When I was calling them, they were like, oh yeah, I actually want to order more. Mm. <laughs> no, it's good that you call me, uh, that kind of stuff. So it was, uh, even in the times of crisis, you know, we got together and united some way and then we, we brought something beautiful. It was a good year for us in sales too, even with with um, with COVID, and even not having a place to to have them. I mean, we kind of go really creative in in some ways, and I think that's great because some of the things that maybe you didn't even uh, think about it, you know, you start creating new ways to approach people or or um, just enable to to sell the wines, right? And being in, in technology before, I think that helped us too, to um, kind of, you know, find ways mm -hmm. to advertise if you want or to use those tools. And also, I mean, we've been working from home forever. I mean, my, my previous job, I used to work from home. I used to travel, but I used to work from home all the time. Same with Ryan. So that didn't affect us so much uh, as a couple, but also as a business owners. Mm -hmm. We would just for us, it wasn't shocking to work from home because we were doing that. So that kind of helped us a little bit because it wasn't like a big. Um, I mean, the, the only thing I will say that having the kids 24 seven, that was that was a little bit <laughs> distracting. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm used to working at home. <laughs> I'm not used to working at home with my kids being at home all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that it, it was yeah. nice, but yeah. at the same time, it was like working all day, you know, breakfast and lunch and dinners and work and 
trying to do some errands and you know the house gets a little bit dirty because you have the kids all day and then that kind of stuff and I mean they help it you know you have to argue with them about helping you and have those chores and the chores increase uh, last year so it was just like I mean we made it we made it but but in terms of the business I think we we find some ways to to you know to survive in that in that way and we did we did really good yeah we increased our wine club memberships too that way uh, some people that were referring us they were tasting wines and and just call us and I was just yeah very surprised about it very happy yeah obviously the other the other part of 2020 was the harvest and, and the fires and smoke mm-hmm. blasters so I'm curious about the effect that had on, on you and on and, and kind of the decisions you had to make and and, and um, and reaction you had to make to that. Yeah, I mean, 2020 was uh, a challenging year pretty much the whole way around. <laughs> um, it started with a terrible fruit set. So um, right now uh, the vineyard's in bloom. Uh, it's probably right around 50%. So this is like, this is kind of like the day you circle on the calendar and you can basically start running the clock to you know know when you're gonna harvest uh, within, a, within a pretty, pretty good range. Um, so, you know, so we started with, you know, poor fruit set last year, um, lots of hens and chicks in the vineyard. Um, and uh, it was um, looking very stellar though, from a quality perspective, not from a quantity perspective. Um, and the, you know, the only concern was, um, you know, as we were starting to approach harvest, um, it, was, it was pretty warm. And then what kind of drives the heat um, you know, here in the Willamette Valley is, is, um, is, uh, an east wind. Um, and so when, when the, the, uh, the, the air from, you know, back in the desert on the other side of the, the Cascade Mountains comes over here, then we get, we get warm in the summer. And so we had a big east wind come in September. And so, uh, originally I was just concerned that we were going to ripen at the very end too fast. Um, it ended up picking all of our white wines, so rosé, um, chardonnay, and our sparkling, all prior to the fire starting. Um, but good. then once uh, once that started, then um, you know, obviously, you guys were all here. It was something that we've none of us have ever experienced before in our lives. Um, how uh, how crazy that was. Um, and uh, you know, there was a great deal of uncertainty at that point. It was like, well, you know, what do you do? You know, if you have crop insurance, do you just not make wine and just take your crop insurance? Um, you know, part of something in me says, you know, your intellectual curiosity should at least lead you to make some wine and see what you can do with it. Because, mm-hmm. you know, nobody, you learn? nobody in the Willamette Valley has experience with dealing with this unless they came from, uh, you know, California recently or, or Australia uh, by far and away has had the most experience with that. Um, so... Uh, so yeah, there was just, you know, just um, lots of people, you know, lots of different ideas and and none of them were particularly tried and true, right? You know, so um, we didn't really know what to do. So we decided to make wine um, and see what, uh, see what would happen. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got mixed results. So we've got some that's, that's turning out really well and, and some that um, probably, you know, won't see the market. So um and uh it's been uh it's been a, a, an interesting learning experience uh, and hopefully something that we never have to do again mm-hmm. but you know um 
there's, you know, probably reality is, is, is we'll probably see it again at some point and uh, hopefully not this year, uh, <laughs> but we'll probably see it again. And, and I think we'll all be much better uh, equipped to, uh, to deal with it. Um, it's, uh, it's not the end of the world, but uh, it's certainly not ideal, so. Right, yeah. Yeah. But it, it was, yeah. I mean, it was uh, scary when we saw that, especially if we were building this, right? And the fires yeah. were so close, and we were worried not just about the grapes, about, the, we were worried about our whole place. Mm -hmm. And like, what are we gonna do? And then when we harvest, we decided to harvest just because also lots of people depends on the harvest, right? I mean, all the, you know, the vineyard stores that we have, they're dependent on that, you know, and able to feed their families. And also we just wanted to learn and see what happened as Ryan mentions, right? So, um, yeah, it's very good experience in some way. Like if you want to take it positive, <laughs> now you know what's going on. Uh, the people that decided not to do it, they don't know, so they have to learn if that happens again. Uh, and then we will have some people that they, they know how to deal with with, with this type of, uh, you know, um, events, right? Yeah. So we had, we had, we had talked about uh, all your non, other nonprofit experience, all your working with organizations in the industry, but obviously mm -hmm. IEVOI. Mm -hmm. um, so tell me about the, the sort of origins of IEVOI, uh, getting it, uh, what, where the idea came from and, and getting it started. Yeah, so I think the idea started with, um, it wasn't just, just me, it was also Miguel Lopez and Jesus, but I will talk a little bit of what was, to me was interested, and then wish I shared my, my thoughts with, with Miguel and Jesus because they're Latinos as well. So when, when I left my, you know, the IT industry, you know, that field, I started getting more involved in growing the grapes with, with my crew. Um, it was easy for me to, to ask questions or to see them or to understand just because most of them are Latinos. So I speak not only the language, but their culture, right? So I was getting a little bit closer to them and I find out lots of things that um, some of them, they, they didn't even taste wines. Um, they didn't know what happened after harvest. Um, they don't know, um, speak the language. They would ask questions like, why do you cut the grapes off and leave them on the ground? This doesn't make any sense. Right. You know, like when you know, you're doing the crop thinning. The right? crop thinning, yeah, they, yeah. I mean, to me it was, um, very interesting if you want to say, if you want to say, but um, to get to know, like they were just coming, some of them coming without knowing the purpose of the tasks that they were doing at that time. The, the, you know, what was the word, what, what that job, it will influence the wine, right? So um, when I was listening to Jessica Cortell, we worked with her, she's our vineyard management company, Jessica Cortell, and she explains to them things like every single vineyard is different, right? So for us, we wanted some some of the, the the things that we practice in our vineyard. We were telling the you know the vineyard stewards, but I remember this case about um, how was the name uh, Jesus. Um, he came and and he called me and he said, Sophia, we're dropping lots of fruit. I think we're not doing the right thing, you know when Ryan and Jessica and I, we walk with them in the morning, it's like, okay, just pick the best cluster. Normally it's the first one. 
um, and then the rest just drop the fruit. Just keep one cluster per shoot because we want we wanted the best cluster, right? We wanted to make the best wine. So, um, so he called me. I was like inside the house. I'm like, can you come outside because I think maybe we're doing the opposite because <laughs> there was tons of fruit. And then I came outside, and then I even called Ryan, right? Because also, you know, I was like, yeah, there's lots of fruit. Um, so, so we explained them, you know, why we do this because we are aiming for quality instead of quantity. But what are you going to do with all that fruit? And then I understood that they were a little bit worried because their harvest, that, that affected their harvest, right? They make money for, um, you know, all the clusters that are hanging, right? You pay them by the bucket. So the more grapes that are hanging, the more money they will make. And I didn't think about that at that time. I thought about that when I was, you know, sharing my thoughts with Miguel and Jesus and about, you know, teaching them, telling them what is our, our purpose because of the ones that we wanted to introduce, we wanted to make. And I just, I was just getting very involved. I was getting very, um, you know, interesting about not only the activities here, but also their lives and how we could help them in some way and help us too, because when they know what they're doing, uh, you know, when they have the purpose, they're going to understand what kind of wines we want to make. So it's very important to have that synergy with them and to teach them and to empower them. So uh, I'm not a big so fan. You, so you kind of saw the need, right? I saw the need, yeah. But, you know, Ivoy was kind of born from uh, Sofia, Jesus Guillen, and Miguel Lopez getting together for coffee at Red Hills Market. Mm -hmm. And they would do it somewhat infrequently because it was hard to pin the three of them down. Right. Right. <laughs> but Sofia was very adamant about it. And I think, you know, Jesus, to, you know, as well, but just, uh, he was a very busy guy. Um, but you guys used to get together and talk about, well, what would this thing look like and what would we try and do? What can we do? Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it was uh, born born of that, and you obviously had had your idea like what you wanted to see. And I, and, you know, Jesus had an amazing story of you know coming from his his dad worked in a vineyard in Oregon, and he worked in the vineyard in Oregon, and worked his way on up to being the head winemaker at, at White Rose, right? Mm -hmm. And one and of so, the top winemakers, yeah, you know, Latino so, winemakers, yeah. You know, there. Um, how, how do you get more, more people that opportunity? I think it was kind of you know yes. maybe maybe one of his big ideas, One of right? Things, Which is, yeah. you know, part of the, the goals of Ivoy, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was like helping them, empower them, but at the same time, making and grow the best grapes, right? That uh, as they know, as they get that knowledge, they will, they will grow the best. So I'm not a big fan of giving money for free uh, because we could just, you know, oh, we want to help them. Oh, let's just have this foundation, this to give them money for, whatever need they have but we actually we wanted to empower them with education we wanted to uh, even teach them like I mean Jesus and Miguel they were saying what about if we just get them together in a vineyard and then we give a lesson about crop thinning or about pruning or about that kind of stuff and who are we going to bring so everything started that way you know let's just we never like we didn't think about going to Temecula or Linfield you know at that time it was just like we just wanted like to do it right away and we weren't even thinking about a, a non-profit. We were just thinking about, let's just give them lessons. Let's just give them English lessons. Let's just give them, you know, trying to make them part of the whole story in the wine industry, right? They're part of the story, but they didn't feel part of the story, but they're the foundation of, 
our wine industry. So we wanted to get them know that we appreciate and recognize that job. Um, but yeah, so uh, there was this lady um, that told me, you know what, you need to know Jessica Sandro from Chamecula. They're going to have this talk. Maybe the talk is not very interesting for you, but she's going to be there to just go meet her. <laughs> so I went there to this, uh, um, um, this talk and, and I sat next to Jessica. And then I told her about, you know, Jessica, my name is Sofia. I was just like, I don't know how to even talk to her about the idea that we have, you know, Jesus and Miguel. And, um, and I just started talking. I think I was just talking with my heart that, that she's like, oh my God, I love that program. I love what your idea, I love, yeah, let's, let's keep talking. And, and then uh, I think that Chamekera was trying to do some new programs. And I think she, she thought at that time that it would be a good, good timing, you know, to introduce a program dedicated for vineyard stores to get to know what happens not just in the vineyard but also winemaking and sales to enable to empower them but also to give them an opportunity and a career path in the industry. Um, so we started there and then as you know um, Jessica got really involved with us then you were involved because his, you met Jesus Guillen before me and Jesus told, told you about this idea and you were very interested too like oh I think that's that's a really, really nice, humble, you know, way to help your people. And, and I'm here to help you. I, I remember you mentioned that. And then uh, Miguel also, he's a very passionate and I mean, he's a Latino as well. He really, he worked in the vineyards too. And, and uh, then he was a winemaker with Jared, you know, from Domain Roy. And, and uh, but his passion was the vineyard, right? So it was like, let's just, let's just try to do this. So, I think help us a lot that Jessica was involved and we start um, forming the board, right? I was so busy because you know, all this, all this stuff and then Ryan was like, you're so busy but now you're trying to do this, okay, <laughs> sounds good. Uh, but we had the board, right? And then you're part of the board at, at some time and then we have these 10 people with different backgrounds, different experiences and I think that's making iVoice very successful. Uh, because we have people that they're very smart people. Uh, I couldn't do it just by myself. Miguel couldn't do it by himself. Jesus couldn't do it by himself. Um, so it's just like a collaboration. I mean, we have Diana. You know, Diana, um, I like Diana a lot because she has so much passion and energy. And when we told her that we wanted her to be the president of our voice, she was like, really? Why? Why you saw me? That I mean, why not you, right? And it's like, that's part of empowering people, right? I mean, we're... I mean, I feel that I'm almost 50. I need to help younger generations to get to be successful. And Diana is, is a big example. You know, I want we want Diana to, to be successful, and you know her. I mean, she's she's pretty good. And and then Cristina Gonzalez, Elena Rodriguez, uh, you know, from Alumbra, Cristina from Gonzalez, and Sam Parra. I mean, he's dynamite. He's got so much energy. And <laughs> I mean, um, you and Jessica and. Heidi Carly Tell, you know, it is like financial, our financial number lady. Juliana, of course, she's Jesus Guillen, you know, wife, and, and uh, she's very passionate about this and she wants to continue what Jesus started with us, you know, as a night boy. So it's, it's getting really, really big. And I'm just so happy that the people in the industry are helping us a lot. It's still very new for lots of people, not lots of people know about it. So we like, uh, to talk about that all the time because um, I think when we bring everybody that as part of the story, 
and in together, right? Uh, the better community we will have, the better industry we will have, the better wines we will make. Uh, I mean, we have phenomenal winemakers. We have, we are the winery owners, vineyard owners, but we want to bring everybody together to understand uh, what this um, region has to offer in the world, right? But if we're missing a part, then it's just not going to be the best. Having all together as a part of this and give them the knowledge, and and I think now. Uh, we're going to be a very well recognized region in the world just that is doing those kind of things, right? Yeah. I don't know. I get very passionate about that. I've, I've noticed that, yeah. <laughs> so in, in, your, in your opinion, from your memory, what were, what were some of the, the biggest sort of milestones for IAVOI from, from its inception to now? What are some of the biggest accomplishments uh, the organization's made? Yeah, I think what it was very successful in the beginning, well, of course, it was a good idea. We were developing little by little. I think I was um, getting the money to start the program. And so that was the first, the first thing. How, we, okay, we have the great idea how we're gonna fundraise the money because, I mean, I really can run this business <laughs> financially. No, no, that's not true, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think the, um, the first mile, milestone was our uh, having to, getting together with ERAT Foundation um, he invited us to go to uh, meet with uh, the board and, and he says just, Sophia, that's a great idea. That's something that really touches my heart. I really wanted to do this in some way, but I'm a white person. I cannot, you know, I'm not very approachable with Latinos, I guess. Um, they might be, you know, no, listen to me or I don't know how to approach them, but you guys are Latinos. I think you guys, you guys, I think have, a great idea. So he invited us to go, and you were there, Rich. You were there. In the, remember that I was working in some numbers in the car. <laughs> I'm like, okay, how much the be this? How much money we can ask him? And when we got there, I was very nervous. We present I boy, and I think we we really nail it. And they said, okay, you can step out of the room, and we're just gonna talk about it. And I was just like, are they gonna tell us today? <laughs> I was just like, are they gonna say yes or no to you know give us the money that we needed to start the program? And I remember uh, we have only three people interested in the program by then uh, when we needed 11 students, right? But when we presented to Irat um, and his boy, I remember he says, are you sure are you gonna get the 11 students? Are you sure? And then we say yes. And if we have the money, yes. And then when we came back to the room and they said, okay, so this is the money we're gonna we're gonna help you to start iBoy, you know, to give you the, the, the money that you need to start. I was just like, in my mind, I didn't say anything there, but in my mind I was like, okay, now we need to go to the fields and really get the students because now we have the money. So I think that was the, the very first step, uh, success, you know, for us. And then we just went and it was a little bit uh, hard just because we're busy people, right? Uh, to talk to vineyard management companies, to talk to people that I knew. Uh, or that I know about uh, what about helping your vineyard store to get education and learn about these and people that were like what I mean that's why you want to do that you know like tell me more about it and that's a great idea but how are you going to start these and where are they going to go and, and then we were talking at the same time with Chemeketa having the students there and then with Limfield uh, but I think the very first success was uh, getting the money getting the students we started with uh, 10 students 
I believe, correct me. Um, and then, uh, and then the second one, it was just like we had the media, we have um, lots of people interested to to talk about iVoy. I got invited a lot to lots of conversations, so I, that gave me the opportunity to speak about our nonprofit organization. And then 2019 is when we formally um, signed up the papers to be a nonprofit. So that was a another milestone because people that were saying, okay, we want to donate money. Do you have a way to use a, a tax receipt? You know, so we really needed to have like the nonprofit established, right? Mm -hmm. So then we went into that and then, okay, let's start the program. Then the difficulty was to finish the program in 2020 because of the, the COVID, right? So that was another thing, but I will say in general, those were the first three steps, you know, like the money, the students, and and giving and also reaching the um, the goal about a, being a nonprofit, yeah. And then the rest, you know, it's been like it has lots of challenges because we are volunteers, you know. We just pick one person, you know, uh, the program coordinator and grant coordinator, uh, but the rest were completely a hundred percent volunteers, and everybody has their own business. Everybody has their children, and there's just such a small amount of time that you have, but the passion that we have for this is, is big enough that sometimes we just sacrifice some of the activities that we have uh, in able to do this. I mean, Brian sometimes says, you need to take a day off. And I was like, um, I just don't have the time to take a day off, right? So, um, so yeah, but I think, I don't know, what, what do you think about the other milestones that we have as an IVO? You were part of this for three years, so. Those are the big um, ones to me. I mean, getting the first class graduating was the first class, especially after COVID. Right. Was a, that was a pretty, pretty milestone for me. That was that was amazing. That, I mean, it was here. The graduation was here. Having the students, you know, I don't know if you remember. How did they start? Like they were not very confident. They were afraid because the program is English immersion, right? And they were a little bit afraid of having everything, all the information in English. And then at the end, when we have the graduation, right? Uh, how different the students look. How they were speaking in English completely all the time when in the beginning they were a little bit intimidated to speak English and, and then now they want to be part of iVoy, they want to help as well. And then we have the other cohort, you know, graduating. Mm -hmm. And we have, the, in, the, in the first group we didn't have any women. The second group we have four women graduating, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's evolving, right? It's a, it's a program that is evolving, it's getting more attention. We have some applications already now with some students. Um, yeah, Jason Lett is going to send uh, someone. And I mean, we have several companies now that they, they're very interested. They want to sell them in Argyle and, you know, um, of course, Lee. Um, so I think it's, it's a program that is, is getting very well recognized and uh, very well accepted. And I think it's, it's the right way to do as a community to function in the wine industry properly as we support these kind of organizations, right? Um, to help each other in some way. So, yeah, I mean, I just can't believe we have the second graduation. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. And the support, I mean, you saw Argyle, they gave us the, the place to have that graduation. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So as you kind of diverted back, back to the industry here for a second, but as you look at both of you look ahead for, for Oregon Wine, 
uh, what's the industry going to look like uh, in, the, in the coming years? How is it going to come out of the pandemic? Um, and then what's, what will the future of the industry look like? Hmm. Um, <laughs> see how my crystal ball is working today. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I think one of the things that's, that, you know, certainly that we've noticed in the 10 years that we've been here is just the, I mean, the, the growth, right? I mean, there are so many more people coming here. Um, just the, you know, the, the number of wineries, the number of vineyards, um, it's just, it's, it's grown at a pretty incredible rate. Um, but I always kind of think back to the perspective of, you know, where the grapes came from that we grow here in Oregon, right? Well, at least right you know, in this, this particular area, we're growing mostly a Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and, you know, Riesling things, uh, Pinot Gris, things that grow well in cooler climates. Um, and, uh, you know, if you go back to the, you know, the old world in France where, where you know, Pinot Noir you know, came from, right, they've been farming grapes there for, for nearly a thousand years, right? And they've mapped out, you know, where all the best areas are. Um, and, uh, you know, they've been farming them for hundreds of years and, and you know, the, the monks have documented, you know, the stuff going back, you know, centuries and, and um, we're just getting started, right? Um, you know, the industry here is just a little over 50 years old. Um, you know, the 60s and the 70s, there was very, very few wineries and it didn't really kind of take off until the 80s and so, you know, our, uh, our best vineyards, you know, might be under blackberries or uh, in trees today, right? You know, we've, we've got a long ways to go, um, you know, in terms of, you know, finding the best of what Oregon has to offer from, from a wine perspective. So, I, you know, I just see this kind of, you know, immense bright future out there uh, in terms of, you know, wine quality and, and the impact of uh, Oregon can have on the, the wine industry as a whole. So. Yeah. I second that. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty, yeah, we're still, we're going to grow a lot, yeah. We just, uh, I, I, I wish I could, we could still keep this kind of, the sense of the community, you know, like we just really need to remind ourselves that helping each other is the best way to go. Yeah. Right? Not to, not to uh, feel that our, we are like, Oh, so successful, you know, like, I mean, the, the people from the Willamette Valley Workers Association, you know, they always talk with things about our industry, you know, they're hoping to put the name out there and they're great people work a lot. And, and I think we need to keep it humble. Uh, we need to keep it powerful in some way. Um, we need to keep it through, true. Uh, we have to keep our personality as, I mean, I'm not, Oregonian, but I just feel the Oregonian love here and the, the communal kind of thing. I think uh, we just have to remem remind ourselves every time when, we, when we're growing to come back to our roots and to, you know, how we started and keep it that way. Because that's, that's the way that is sustainable too and, and true and beautiful. And, and, um, and um, I just, it's like when you start being, you know, like you're, you're like get out of, High, high school and then you go to college and then you have your first job and then you have your NARA director and now you're the CEO or like some, somebody very successful. You always have to look back and, and make sure where you come from. Yeah, and just keep it that way, you know? Mm -hmm. Like have those roots, have those 
that, that love and that passion for where you came from. And, and I think if Oregon keeps that kind of spirit, uh, it's just going to be good, even if we grow, like, because we're going to grow for sure. Yeah. I don't know. You. I get very by, by the way, somebody that lives in Oregon is an Oregonian. So, well, I so you know. should classify yourself as one. <laughs> I'm Oregonian, <laughs> but I mean, I didn't grow up here. Right, right. No, I, I know, but you know, this is part of I, I really know where I come from, right? Yeah. So I have to keep that in my mind. I know. I know. That label sticks with you forever, right? So, yeah. yeah, no, I think, uh, I mean, you, you understand what I mean. You know, I, yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. The Oregon wine industry was started by people from California, ironically. Right? Yeah? So, yeah, I mean, really. Yeah. So, um, what about as you look ahead for yourselves and for, for both yourselves and, and for the brand? What, what's coming next for Cremoisie and what's coming next for the two of you? Uh, well, one thing I well, maybe we can kind of parlay this into that. What just was that I was thinking about was you know just in kind of the the, the nascentness of the, of our industry is that you know when they started here you know they they brought Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and then they they decided that they didn't like the Chardonnay and that it was no good and that you couldn't grow Chardonnay in Oregon. Um, we've seen just such a huge resurgence of. Chardonnay, and we've had personally in, encountered great success with it. We uh, wish we had more. Mm -hmm. you know, we, need, we, need, we need some more land, I guess. But um, <laughs> but yeah, no, we I mean, our, we just released our first Chardonnay this year, and it sold out in like a couple of months. And it was we just you know we're just thrilled with the quality of it and uh, what we can do what we can do with it here. So, uh, but I mean, it just kind of comes back to the fact you know there's just there's there's so much still left to do. Um, so where are we kind of going from here? Well, uh, we just finished playing the vineyard last fall, so we're looking forward to um, getting, for the, for the most part, you know, um, a full crop of what our vineyard can produce uh, this year. Um, we endeavor to take our case production just up over a thousand cases, so we're still going to be a very, very small winery. Uh, we in, kind of intend to keep it that way. Mm -hmm. um, we want to, you know, just make the, the best quality wine and keep it kind of small and, and something that, you know, we can stay really hands-on with. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we are really happy with the sparkling. We just uh, got our first sparkling wine out this year. Um, beautiful. We're yeah. going to release it re tomorrow. Re release yeah. event tomorrow. Congratulations. Um, and, uh, yeah, we just... Uh, but, but there's one big thing. So um, Ryan, as he mentioned, he has his day job still. So um, I would like him to join me and be part of this 100% because that's something that he, he started to, you know, with me. So, uh, and I really need his help. <laughs> so um, we want him to, to, to come and be part of this 100% too, maybe in the next two, three years. So that's our goal. And, um, and also, um, we, we want to have our own winery on site that we don't have right now. We want to go maybe in the next six, seven years. Maybe we're going to, I mean, just build this, so budget, <laughs> you know? It's, all, it's not something that, that, we, that we have a lot. So, uh, yeah, but it's, it's, it's something in our mind that is telling us that we needed to have, we need to have it here, um, and and learn more about 
uh, winemaking too in that way, right? With with Drew and and then um, what other thing? Uh, getting the kids a little bit more involved as well. I mean, Jonathan sometimes help us. You know, Mateo's very um, yeah. We'll, very we'll interested see if in the business. If they're but we see. I mean, yeah. my, my 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 dream in the beginning when we talk about having a vineyard it was more about like having a family and a legacy for my kids, you know? So to me, that's kind of like, like the, the cherry in the pie, right? To me, like having all, doing all this together, but that's not their dream. And I, okay, I'm okay with that. They're gonna experience something else mm -hmm. outside of here, you know? Um, that's good. They can screw it up somewhere else and then they can come here with experience. <laughs> yeah. well, one, um, of, one of our colleagues and, you know, here in the industry, uh, you know, uh, Cliff Anderson from the Anderson family. We were talking to him about that idea of, of the legacy and what do you, what do you do with the winery? Is is you know, you want to get on and retire and, and stuff. And um, you know, what he said really kind of stuck with me was, uh, you know, he's like, he's like, I don't want to just give it to my kids because it's going to be one of two things. It's either going to be a burden or it's going to be an entitlement. He said neither of which are good. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, you know, I, I, you know, I thought that was really interesting and, and uh, in a great perspective and, and something I'll, I'll kind of hold on to as we kind of try and figure out what to do this so we, we don't leave them with a burden or we don't leave them with right. an entitlement, right? They, they, uh, they'll mm -hmm. have to figure out if that's something they really want to do on their own and, and, mm -hmm. if, and if they do, then of course there's, yeah, there's because be a spot just, for them. I so. mean, you know, it's not easy, right? having the positions and where we are it looks really nice it looks very glamorous but it's not the whole you know the mm -hmm. whole thing it's a lot of work it's a lot of work it's a lot of um hours you know that you have to spend sometimes um you know a night and um, sacrifice some vacation sacrifice some time with family you know i mean we're missing lots of stuff you know sometimes that and we're like oh we cannot go there because we have this we cannot go this time and so no everybody can do that. This is not something that it's for everybody, right? You really have to have that love and and yeah, and we don't wanna as Ryan says, we just don't wanna do it just here Mateo Jonathan do it now because they're our kids, right? So but in my mind I hope one day they will love it and they will do it. Yeah. Because they wanna do it. Yeah. And um yeah, I think um we didn't talk about the one the club one twenty two but that's something that we're also gonna have, right? In three years, we're gonna have um, this clone 122, no one has it in Oregon. Um, and we're gonna start making wine with uh, that clone. And so we planted uh, 500 plants this year, no, last year, November. So it's gonna take three to four years to harvest and then a year and a half or two years to make it. So it's still time, you know, to to harvest uh, that clone for the first time, but that's something that we're looking forward to, uh, to add it in, in our uh, wines. Yeah. Do you want to say something about that clone, that our expectations are? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a good thing about the future because mm -hmm. uh, we don't know what it's going to do. We, uh -huh. what, if it's going to be good here in Oregon or, or what, but. Um, we know the source. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, you know, the ideas behind are, are solid, and um, it seems to be a, a late ripener, and it looks like we got a nice early, warm growing season this year, so it should should perform well in this year. And we look forward to seeing what it does. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That will be the new addition to our lineup. <laughs>
Yeah. All the questions that I have for the two of you today, uh, is there anything that I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we, else we didn't cover that I should have covered? Um, no, I think that was pretty good. Oh, I got to go. Actually. Oh, thank you. Uh, that was Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rich. Thanks so much, Tia, behind the scenes there. Thank you. Appreciate you guys' time and your stories, and we'll watch you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.